Lord, we're happy to be here this morning. We're happy to celebrate the gospel. And we're happy to celebrate the truth that there is life in you. And Lord, we're happy to also celebrate with our friends and our church family um, the ways that you're working in their hearts. Lord, we celebrate Miles and Jess. We pray for their future. Lord, we pray for their future marriage together, that it would be a marriage grounded in God's truth and the gospel. And so, Lord, in all of these things, uh, we acknowledge that, Lord, you are at work. You are somebody who continues to change and to form and to mold us deeper into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, we're grateful to be able to uh, praise you for the things that happen and the blessings that we share in the church. And we're also sober. We're also sober for the things that are in our lives that represent the lives of the people in this church, the hard things, some of the things we're dealing with that are burdens, some of the things that we don't have an answer for. We also realize that that you are in control of those things as well, that you know things that we don't know. And Lord, your love is enough to cover us through the seasons of change and sometimes heartache in our lives. Lord, we think about Paris. We think about things that happen in this world from people who do not know you, do not have a relationship with you, that mean to harm other people that you have created in your own image. And it sobers us because we realize that there is pain and there is deep sin exists in our world and will continue to exist until one day you come to restore all things. So Lord, we pray for the families. We pray for the heartache and the unimaginable distress that's going on in that major, major city right now. Lord, we pray that you would work. We pray that there would be people there who would be able to see so clearly the evidence of your gospel. So Lord, we pray to those ends. We pray that we'd be mindful of those that are hurting. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort. And we pray that you would comfort our brothers and sisters in Paris, France today, Lord. And I pray that you would open up our own hearts and our own minds to hear some sobering words from you today as well. We pray all these things in your son's name and we all said together, amen. We'll go ahead, if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew Chapter 7, Matthew 7, we're going to be hitting verse 13. While you're turning there, what, one of the things that we can learn and understand and appreciate about the heart of Jesus is that he infuses a proper dosage of both grace and truth in everything that he says. Uh, in fact, when we started this series uh, in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes in September, we saw sort of this beautiful melding together of both grace and truth in the life of Christians. Remember what we went through? We went through the Beatitudes. Uh, Jesus made some of these statements. He said, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He said, those who mourn shall be comforted. He said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. He said, those who are merciful, they are the ones that will receive mercy. He said, the persecuted, They will receive eternal rewards in heaven. So Jesus lays out some of the burdens that living the Christian life will bring. But he also, he also 
he also tallies up the blessings and the promises that come to those who persevere. And many of you can give testimony of this in your own life. You can give testimony of both the burdens that you've experienced and the way that God has come around you and showered you with blessings in the burdens, right? Because we know that the Christian life is not just a bunch of proverbial sayings on coffee mugs and bumper stickers, right? None of us are living that kind of a life, even for those of us who have, you know, you know, you know, not perfect, I'm forgiven, you know, coffee mugs and t-shirts and those things. That's not how we live our lives. That's not the ins and the outs of the existence that we carry as being people that want to follow Christ. That's not what gives us any hope and any comfort. But what does give us comfort is understanding what Jesus lays out to us in a very real, very honest way as he's been doing through his sermon. So as Jesus reaches sort of the 39-minute mark now in his sermon... He's going to provide for us today, most specifically, some really chilly warnings and contrasts for his disciples who will be descending at some point back down the mountain any minute now. And in case any of them has started to drift off a little bit during the sermon, right? You know, start checking Facebook, you know. And by the way, yes, I can see all of you checking Facebook while I preach on Sundays. But in case any of that was starting to happen... He reminds them of this main point, which is what we're going to anchor ourselves in and look at this morning, and it's this. True Christian faith is known by Christ-like fruit. True Christian faith is known by Christ-like fruit. In other words, it's possible to fake your faith. It's possible to fake your faith, but utterly impossible to fool the author of our faith. So, for example, all of us, man, we have all known somebody who has turned out to be different than the person they claim to be, haven't we? Everybody's had experience with that. And when we get to that moment of truth, what we usually say is, I guess I really didn't know them. They showed their true colors. They Ponzi schemed me. I was taken advantage of. And then we typically say things like, man, I hate that I was fooled. How could I have been fooled? What was I missing in this? And so this morning, as we pick up in verse 13, Jesus is going to issue a couple of warnings concerning the path we're on and the kind of fruit that our life produces. In other words, all people, all races, all religions, all countries, nationalities, people groups, families, churches, organizations, anybody that fits within the category of homo sapien, all right, is on one of two paths, and the fruit that comes out of your life will give evidence of which path you're on. And let me just preemptively shout out ahead of time that these are, man, these are scary and these are sobering verses for us. These are those verses that cause us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. They cause us to count the cost of what it means to follow Christ and engage in a lifelong pursuit of the Christian life. They call that into question. They make us wonder, wait a minute, have I been thinking of this right Am I really a follower of Christ? Because here's what's interesting, man. Unless some of you guys, and this is what I can't see from up here, but unless some of you have had earbuds in during the entire series, you've not heard anything come out of Jesus' mouth that resembles any sort of just light, fluffy, positive, hallmark card, world headquarters of nice people brand of Americanized Christianity. That's not where he's going at with any of this. I mean, it it literally has... No, no 
no, uh, it, it literally has no connection with any of that type of Christianity that we see sort of proliferated out there in our culture. Jesus was not a guy who was going to spend the next three years posting status updates about his outrage over Starbucks serving holiday coffee in red cups. That's not where he's going with this. That's not what he's going after. All of Jesus' blog posts from this point forward were heading and leading to bloodshed. That's it. And he was calling a people who would be marked by that blood for eternity for their identity. And for joy, ironically enough. And for joy. So today Jesus takes us from the beginning of the road to the end of the road and issues a warning against taking the wrong road and being or seeing those who are rabid about deceiving you in your journey of faith. That's where we're going today. Let's pick up in chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So one of the things we don't want to ever do is accuse Jesus of minimizing or rose-coloring the Christian life, right? I mean, accuse dudes that stand in pulpits who are afraid of telling you what Jesus tells you about it. Jesus describes two gates and two roads, one narrow, one wide. The narrow gate opens to the road of life. The wide gate opens to the road of death. And he's using a metaphor here to describe a life lived in obedience to Christ versus a life lived in obedience to to our own desires, which the false religious leaders were doing that he's just spent an entire sermon very unsubtly like, if that's a word, hammering. That's what he's been doing to the religious leaders. So the temptation now facing his followers after all of this is the same temptation we face, which is to not take the call to Christ very seriously and to take certain parts of it and actually just dismiss it and to kind of push it aside, and to pull back from it. I mean, the bottom line is that as brilliant and as eloquent as I am, and you should laugh after I say that, I have to face the truth that most of you are not going to remember what I said to you in 30 minutes, right? So what Jesus is doing now, knowing the people he's speaking to, is giving a bit of a summary statement to all the commands he's been laying down in his sermon. He's saying, following Christ, following me, is narrow. It's narrow because it points to one person as the answer for everything. That's the Christian life. In John 14, 6, Jesus essentially punks one of his disciples, a guy named Thomas. After he asks Jesus, he says, how are we supposed to know what the right way is, Jesus? Jesus says to him, brother, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Boy, that's kind of a narrowing down of the options, isn't it, for us? I mean, what else in your life looks like that? What else in your life is that narrow? Jesus says, I am the road to life, and it's a road that's hard, and it's filled with heaviness. Sign me up. Now, it's easy for us to sort of pump our fist. You know, we see that, right? And we get a little sense of vigilance in us, and we sort of pump our fist, we thump our chest, 
You know, we paint our face. We look like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings as we descend like warriors through the narrow gate, right? Some of us like feel, yeah, you know, the narrow gate. But here's what's interesting, man, is that we are constantly battling with boundaries, aren't we? I mean, the fact that Jesus narrows down our earthly options is very significant and very interesting, isn't it? And it's okay to admit that. Following Christ narrows our earthly options. It's okay to say, yes, following Christ narrows things down. That doesn't mean we're trading out grace here. We know that there is more joy when worldliness is decreasing in us, right? You don't have to Jesus juke me right now with all that. Like, we know that. We know there's a lot of short-term sin that God calls us away from, not because it's not fun in the moment, but because it's fatal in the end. And it's okay for us to deal with that and to acknowledge that, that the road that Christ has called us to is one that has more limited options. It's narrow, it's heavy, and it's hard. And we don't have to try to assume that because he's telling us that right here. Remember in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they could eat of any tree in the garden except one. So to be obedient, it meant having restriction. But it also meant enjoying the garden. And as soon as they expanded their food palette to include apples, they also traded in the garden and all the other fruit in it. The Bible never says that that apple wasn't good. Never says that anywhere. The problem was that it lost its flavor immediately after consumption. And that's because there's an alluring and there's sort of a deceptive beauty to deathly things, isn't there? We know that. There's there's an alluring quality to sin and death. And it's because sin empowers us in the moment, doesn't it? We feel some sense of empowerment and control in the moment when we're at the height of our sin. We feel powerful when our choices provide immediate gratification. We feel like I'm getting something done. I'm getting what I want. I'm getting what I need. I'm getting what I most desire. It empowers us. Giving into temptation is satisfying because of its relative ease, isn't it? It's easy. I mean, none of us struggle to sin. We struggle not to sin. I mean, to cave into sinful desires, it just doesn't really require a lot of effort. I mean, none of you all work hard to sin, right? I mean, don't wake up in the morning and think, man, it's going to be so hard to get angry on my drive to work today. (laughs) I mean, none of you go to work and just say, man, it's going to take everything in me to become annoyed by my coworkers." I mean, that's going to be a tough one for me. Nobody, nobody, uh, nobody struggles to do what comes most natural to them. Nobody says, you know, today, kids, it's going to be tough. I'm usually so patient with you, but I'm going to work as hard as I can to try and get frustrated with you. None of you kids out there say, you know what, if I try real hard, I might be able to be mean to my friends today but it's going to take some effort on my case. No, all that comes easy because there's no resistance involved. There's no immediate suffering and trials that come with caving in to our natural desires. That's why they're called natural, right? What's natural is to throw in the towel and be faithless in our marriages. That's natural. What's natural is to not show self-control and patience toward our kids. That's natural. What's natural is being unkind and unloving toward people that have hurt us. That's natural. What's natural is grumbling and complaining about things that we feel entitled to. 
it's all easy because deathly things don't require the fight for life and breath. So Jesus says the way to life, it's narrow, it's hard, it's heavy, it's going to feel like a fight. But then he gets to verse 15, he says, but beware of people who come in and tell you it's not, and who deny this truth. 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every church, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Then verse 18, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus warns us about those who walk into our churches looking like grandma from Little Red Riding Hood. People who come in, they say the right things, they look just like us, but eventually expose themselves as ravenous wolves. I mean, don't miss the ravenous part that he adds in front of the word wolves. I mean, notice he didn't say they come in like cute Alaskan huskies or baby St. Bernard's. That's not what he says. He says, people are going to come in looking like you, wearing sheepskin vests from North Face, but underneath want to eat you alive. They want to tear you limb from limb. Boom. These are not sheep. They are the destroyers of sheep. They are people wanting to creep into the sheepfold to devour the sheep. He says, beware, because it's coming. It's happening. It will happen. It's happening. And of course, we just can't help but think of someone like Judas Iscariot. Somewhere that Christ was actually leading personally, that he was going to have personal experience with in his own ministry, with his own group of dudes who he called to follow him and to plant the New Testament church. We can't help but think of Judas Iscariot. And what's interesting about Judas is that all the disciples were surprised when they learned that Judas wasn't one of them. I mean, this is a guy who led a community group. This is a dude that served in the nursery. This is a guy that helped set up and tear down on Sundays. This is a guy who played guitar on the worship team. This is a guy who reached out to his community boldly with the message of the gospel. Judas was like an unhealthy tree that eventually produced diseased fruit. But the interesting about diseases is that they can go undetected for a long time before showing any symptoms, can't they? In John 12, we're told that Judas actually used to skim off the top of the disciples' budget that they had. He was about wealth in the end, not about winning souls. And Judas was eventually cut down, like it says here in verse 19. Because listen to this, his fruit outed him. His fruit outed him. And the encouraging thing here is that bad fruit is recognizable. That's what it says for us in verse 16. Bad fruit is recognizable. Eventually, true colors show. Right? So Judas on the inside became Judas on the outside. He was a diseased tree that eventually showed his diseased fruit. So the warning is that in the beginning, false teachers, false prophets, they look all the world like sheep. But the encouragement is that ravenous wolves will eventually attack with the intent to kill. 
Dude, how is that encouraging? Well, because it means that we see them for who they are. We see the fruit of wolves. It eventually rises to the surface. Well, what is that fruit? Well, it usually it typically shows up in churches uh, with things like divisions and greed. People that are teaching heresy. They're teaching things against what the Bible teaches us. People whose intent to destroy the faith of others starts becoming very noticeable in the way that they interact with the people of God. And every church is susceptible to this. Every church needs to be on guard against this. And elders of all churches need to be on prayerful watch for this. And you know, Paul spilled some ink on this. All right, He spilled some serious ink on this in Acts 20 when he said this. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then he says, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul took this massively serious. He said, there are people that are going to come in. They are amongst our midst. They are going to be very subtle. They're going to be hard to spot, but they eventually are going to say twisted things. They're going to say twisted things. Man, I have friends who pastor churches telling me about their experience with wolves, telling me about their experience of being in a church that was healthy until someone came in, started causing divisions, started saying, you know, I don't know about what they're saying up there. Started developing factions, and before you know it, two years goes by, and a church of 400 goes down to 100 because somebody comes in and causes discord, and a split happens, and it's not dealt with. It's not dealt with. So pray for me. Pray for Dave. Pray for Jeff Powell. Pray that we are on guard and that we're alerted to these things. Because we are just dudes. We need insight. We need wisdom. We need discernment to make sure that everything that's being said, everything that's being promoted here comes from this book. You guys feel me on that? And what's difficult also about wolves is that they are people who are self-deceived. So wolves deceive the people, but they're also self-deceived and have fooled themselves into thinking that they are sheep. This is where it gets a little personal. This is where we stop saying, those people, those wolves. This is when we have to look to our own hearts. Verse 21 says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, talking about the judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many, many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, somebody should just say, like, dang, like, really loud right now. I mean, in terms of ranking, 
I mean, these might be some of, if not the most frightening passages in all of Scripture. I'm going to ask Dave if he knows of any other more frightening passages after the sermon. It tells us that there will be people in the end, on the day of judgment, who face the Lord, who use his name in this type of intimate manner. Whenever you hear a name said twice in Scripture, it always sort of indicates a level of intimacy when they say, Lord, Lord. So people at the end who use the name of the Lord in an intimate manner, sort of the way I say Big Z, or I call Casey Blevins Blev, right? Or I call Kathy Cat, right? So these are people who will use his name in an intimate manner and inform him the Lord, of the works they did in his name. And Jesus is going to stand there and declare no remembrance of them. He's going to say, I never knew you. He will declare that there has been absolutely no relationship. He will command them to depart and tell them they are really people who never obeyed him by doing the will of the Father. He's saying this. He's saying, you are rolling up to this party like you're on the guest list, but you were never even given an invitation, yo. What is this? That's what he's saying. He's saying this. You've kept the law with your hands, but not your heart. He's saying this. You claim to know about God, but what matters for eternity is whether God knows you. It's stunning to me to think that there are people in the church who do good things that will someday be condemned for lawlessness. And what this means is simply this. We can't do what's right without being right with God. We can't do what's right unless we are right with God first. How is this possible, you say? I mean, how is this possible? I mean, these are dudes that spoke at Christian conferences, right? These are going to be guys who wrote books, These are going to be guys who started global ministries. These are going to be guys who gave to the poor, who changed culture, who performed miraculous works. They're going to be like Judas. But they lacked something. They lacked a true faith. But wait, aren't all of those things we just described, the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Hasn't Jesus been talking about these works that are supposed to come from our true faith in him? No, that's not what he's talking about. Which is why it's so dangerous for us to do busy things for God without inspecting the fruit that those busy things are supposed to be the result of. Part of having good fruit is taking regular inventories of your fruit. What is that fruit? Well, it's the fruit of the Spirit. My wife told me, Ronnie, say these next words very slowly. So I'm going to listen to her and say these very slowly. This is the fruit that we need to take regular inventory of in our life. Love. Can I go to the next one yet? (laughs) Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Gentleness. Kindness. I think I said kindness. And self-control. Those are just some of the fruits that we take regular inventories of our heart to see if those things are actually reflective of our lives. These are the fruits that give evidence of true faith. You know, one of the characteristics I've witnessed in myself and people who are growing and maturing in true Christ-like faith is that man, motivations are constantly being monitored. Motivations are constantly being monitored. There's an ever-growing awareness 
for why you're doing the good things that you're doing. And that's because a growing, abiding love for God, it begins to reveal and unravel a sharp self-awareness of self-love. That's what happens. Our sanctification is marked by an increasing desire for Jesus that simultaneously produces an ever-increasing disdain for our sin. So those two things are happening at the same time. I desire Jesus. I disdain my sin. I love him. I hate this. You know, if these passages cause you to shudder a little bit on the inside, that's the Holy Spirit working in you. And if they cause you to shrug, you may have a different spirit living inside you. You may have the spirit of the age living inside you. That shrug requires repentance. And you don't need an altar call. You need to simply answer the call that God is laying on your heart for why this is so. True Christian faith is characterized by Christ-like fruit. And what I love about the way Jesus communicates in all things, in all of his warnings, in all the things that he's not trying to front on, all the things that he's not trying to deceive us, all the pictures he gives us that aren't so rosy and fluffy, you know, that don't resemble the inside of a Hallmark store or a Christian bookstore, all those things that he doesn't just shovel our way. You know what I love about it? It shows such great love and grace. It shows immeasurable love and grace. Have you ever had someone give you some information that, that saved your life or that saved you heartache at the very least or even maybe saved you some money? Maybe you went to the doctor and he said, it's a good thing you came to me when you did because now there's time to treat what's wrong with you. Or maybe you brought your car into the mechanic and he told you that if you would have driven it any longer, it would have cost you an engine. And we've all had things like that happen to us. Jesus is saying this, stay off the easy path, stay clear of false teachers, and stay away from works of the flesh. I'm warning you, he's saying, against self-deception. And what a thing to be warned by Jesus for. The person who has power over life and death. The very person who has power to save you from your self-deception is warning you about your self-deception. And so here are three of those deceptions that I think we need to be aware of as we draw this closer in, as we make this a little more personal to us in our walk with Christ. The first one, the first deception that we need to be aware of is ease. Ease. What I mean by that is this, being lured by least resistance. Being lured by least resistance. And this is how it fleshes out. This is how it looks for some of you out there. It means that you constantly lean into whatever is the least confrontational. You lean into what is least confrontational. You resist your heart ever being challenged. It's like this. It's like your heart has hands and it's going like this. You refuse to ever take hard stands on time-tested biblical truths. And you're out on that stuff. You're so afraid of judging other people that you never judge your own motivations. You're afraid to live out the gospel because you know it will be uncomfortable. And so what you've done is you've backed, you've consistently backed into a life of ease. You are crawling after the wider, the easier, the less challenging path that has not been laid out before you if you know Christ. 
So number one, we want to be aware of ease, too. We want to be aware of appearance. What I mean by that is being easily wowed by wolves. I mean, a wolf in sheep's clothing is going to look impressive, isn't he? I mean, at first, he's going to have ideas. They're going to seem exciting and new. They're probably going to contain some truth because up to this point, it's only been a bunch of sheep hanging around that all believe the same thing. But true faith produces works of fruit, not works that are simply fruit-flavored. There's a difference. True faith is characterized by something, and it's this, steadfastness, obedience, and a ferocious and growingly ferocious desire for the unchanging truths of the gospel. Oh, man, those things build inside of you, and you just want to go after it and go after it. For some of you that are feeling discouraged, and for some of you who go around feeling perpetually discouraged, for some of you of which when somebody comes up and says, how is it going, you literally can't even fake it, and you go, well, I'm not being dismissive. I'm not even trying to be funny for once in my life. I'm simply saying, if you are feeling that level of discouragement, do a checklist of the things that attract you and that you're drawn to, the things you're attracted to and the things that you're drawn to. Man, is it clear? Is it true? Is it clear, orthodox, Christian truth? Or is it something not so easily defined? Is it murky? God's not giving us murkiness in his word. Is it more about what you don't believe? Is that where you find your thoughts and your heart going? Trying to work out all the things you're not about because you don't want to be like them? Is it more about social issues? Is it more about politics? Is it more about all this stuff of which he is speaking nothing of? But the appearance of it keeps your life in constant discouragement because you've been easily wowed by things that don't promote the growth of the gospel in your heart. So ease, appearance, and finally, number three, third deception to be aware of is works. And what I mean by that is this, being busy people rather than believing people. Here's the thing. Busy people know how to work with their hands, but they've never learned how to worship with their hearts. There's a massive difference between the two. The fact that there are people that Jesus... Now listen to what he said here. The fact that there are people that Jesus said he's going to say the words, I never knew you after all the serving they did in their local church should make your heart literally stop right now. It's insane. That's an insane statement for us to consider. But it's a gracious warning, isn't it? I mean, look, we can work for a big boss in a big company and do all kinds of good work that furthers the company and the people who benefit and profit from it. But that does not mean that you know the boss. It doesn't mean you're written into the boss's will just because you work for the boss. Only the boss's children are written into the boss's will because for them... He's not the boss. He's dad. Turn with me to Psalm 1. Because it echoes 
some of the things that Jesus is telling us this morning. Psalm chapter 1. I'm going to read it as you get there. It says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way. He knows the way of the righteous. The same way that Jesus has been describing for us today. He knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, he knows, will perish. The way of the righteous is made up of men and women and children who yield the kind of fruit that can only come from a delight in obeying and meditating on God's word. And our model for this, well, it's like how we want to end all of our sermons. Our model for this is Jesus. Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil that manifest themselves through wolves in sheep's clothing. He didn't die for us out of obligation or out of compulsion, but out of obedience to God and compassion and love for mankind. Because of this, in the last day when we say, Lord, Lord, he will call us good and faithful servant because he knows us. Amen. Pray together.